Our uh, scripture reading uh, this evening comes from the book of Job, and we'll be looking together at uh, Job uh, chapter 32. And so please turn with me there, Job chapter 32. We noted uh, last time at the end of uh, chapter 31 that though the words of Job are ended, the book of Job is not, uh, because though uh, Job has done his speaking, uh, there is more speaking to be done. Uh, not by Job, uh, not by his uh, three friends, uh, but God has a lot to say. And, um, and a man named Elihu, uh, which we will be introduced to tonight. And so Job uh, chapter 32 uh, is our scripture reading. And so this is uh, the word of the Lord. So these uh, three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years, you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. It's not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say, we've found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait, because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we pray that as tonight we consider these uh, words from this uh, chapter uh, of Scripture, that you would give us insight uh, to see and to know uh, what you have for us. Uh, We thank you that all Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for correction and rebuke and training in righteousness, and that all Scripture speaks to us somehow uh, 
of the Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us to see uh, great things in your word tonight by your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in a uh, review uh, of the book, God is just not fair, finding hope when life doesn't make sense, uh, a reviewer wrote this about this book, God is just not fair. We all have them at one time or another, whether they come as unwelcome visitors when trials or tragedy occur, or as a result of watching someone else suffer, they're as common as a cold, questions like these. God, are you fair? God, do you err? God, do you hear prayer? God, do you care? God, are you aware? God, are you there? In her latest book, says this reviewer, God is just not fair. Jennifer Rothschild takes each of these questions apart and examines them in light of Scripture. Having lost her sight as a teenager, Jennifer has navigated the world blind for her entire adult life. Even in the darkest moments while suffering deep depression due to chronic exhaustion and other physical changes, she continued to look to the right source for her answers. With more holes in her blanket of faith than she could possibly patch, she allowed God to fill the missing pieces. It's not wrong to ask questions, says this writer. In fact, it's right. How we process them and where we turn to for answers is what makes all the difference. There are only two potentials when dealing with hardship. We get bitter or we get better. Much of that depends, she writes, upon the lens through which we choose to view life. Do you have those questions at some times? You know? God, are you, are you there? God, do you care? Well, Job certainly has had these questions, and uh, he's been asking them uh, for many, many chapters. Though he's had all these questions, though, we have noted that the answers have not been uh, forthcoming. Uh, for for Job. They have not been as plentiful as the questions. And in fact, uh, last time in chapter 31, we noted that as Job's words come to an end, he ends with this note in verse 35 of chapter 31. Oh, says Job, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And those are the end of the words of Job. This cry that the Almighty would answer him. And no doubt, uh, no doubt you have been there as well. Writes one Bible commentator, Job has made the accusation, God is not fair. He's not merely speaking of corruption in high places, but of corruption in the most high place. If there's not justice in the universe, what hope is there for us? On a personal level, if I feel that God has not treated me right in my health, my upbringing, my abilities, my relationships, my work, or in a failed relationship, a bereavement, a sickness, or a psychiatric disorder, then my faith will be harmed. My obedience will become reluctant. My hope will be destroyed, and my joy will be poisoned. The very first temptation, says this commentator, in the Garden of Eden was to believe that God is not fair. We're reminded as we meet Elihu in this chapter that the justice or the fairness of God is at the heart uh, of the book of Job. And Job wants an answer. Well, God's not going to answer. He's not going to answer immediately. Um, He will give an answer, uh, but then he will answer in a very unexpected way to Job. But for now, 
uh, Job must, must wait. But as he waits for the Lord to speak, uh, the book of Job introduces a new character at chapter 32, and his name is Elihu. And the question is, as we uh, begin these next couple chapters in Job is, because we're going to hear Elihu speak, he's going to give, give really four messages to Job. And the question for us is, uh, what are we to think of this man, man Elihu? Is he, a, is he a better counselor? We've heard from Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar throughout the book of Job, and we found that they have certainly uh, fallen short. Now, here's someone else who comes along, and he's going to speak into, into Job's life. Is this a better way? And is he a better counselor? How should we be listening to him? And that's what we want to think about uh, tonight. First thing we find out uh, with uh, Elihu is that he seems to get off to a, uh, he seems to get off to a rough start. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, uh, but he's not too happy. Um, Elihu, in fact, is angry. And we know that because in the, in the brief space of five uh, verses, uh, the Bible tells us uh, four times uh, that Elihu is burning with anger. Uh, he's angry at Job uh, because he believes Job has pressed his case too far. He uh, believes that Job has uh, assumed that Job himself is more righteous than God. And he believes that Job has been all about justifying himself and his life rather than God, declaring God to be just in all his way. He's mad and angry at Job. He's also angry at the three friends uh, for failing to convince Job that God is not in the wrong. So he's an angry man. Uh, the description here of Job in chapter 32 Verses 1 and 2, uh, the three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And this idea of Job uh, justifying himself rather than God probably brings uh, to your mind the uh, story, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. You might remember that the Pharisee in Luke 18 is described as, or the parable is introduced, the story is introduced as, uh, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, Jesus told this parable. You might have thought of that as you read this passage. And so we might be tempted to think that Job is a Pharisee. But we would be wrong. Because at the end of the book of Job, in Job 42, 7, uh, God will again speak of Job, uh, Job, my servant. So Job is not the the Pharisee of Luke 18, that is, Job is not trusting in his own works or in his own righteousness for salvation or to somehow thinking that he is made right before God through his own works. That's not what Job believes. Uh, he fears God. But clearly, clearly Job is more concerned with demonstrating that he is in the right and should not be suffering rather than demonstrating that God is in the right, whether he suffers or no. And though Job doesn't say it in so many words, his strong defense of himself does leave him open to the charge of accusing God of somehow being in the wrong. 
Because Job's demand, you see, for, for answers from the Almighty implies that Job deserves an answer. Someone put it this way. Maybe this will help. The friends said that Job was suffering because he had sinned, and they were wrong. Elihu, as we find out, will say that Job has sinned because he was suffering. Do you see the difference? The friends have said, Job, uh, you are suffering because you're a sinner. And Boaz says, no, he feared God. But Elihu will say, Job, you are sinning in your suffering. And that is a different matter. Well, there's no answer from the friends, and uh, this drives Elihu up the wall. Derek Thomas said this, Job has a good case. He's expressed it badly. His three friends have good arguments, but they use them badly. And so now we have a new, uh, new, new person introduced to the story, and his name's Elihu. He's young, we find out in verse 4. Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older uh, than he, but we find out that he has been a listener to these conversations, uh, and he can't contain himself any longer. He describes in verse 13 or 19 himself as uh, like a bursting, uh, uh, bottled, bottled up wine. You know those uh, sparkling juices that you buy at Costco that, uh, uh, that, you know, no matter what you do and how you treat them and you baby them and you baby them and you baby them, no matter what happens, um, that's, uh, that's Elihu. He's, he's ready to burst out, overflow, and spill all over. Um, well, who is he? Well, in the book of Job, he's not mentioned outside of chapters 32 to 37. Uh, where he alone is the one, he alone is the one speaking. There are other Elihu's in the Bible. Uh, Samuel had a great-grandfather named Elihu. Uh, David had a brother uh, named Elihu. We find a couple more, one from the tribe of Manasseh, one from the tribe of the Korahites. But this uh, Elihu makes several speeches, but Job doesn't respond, the friends don't respond, and neither does the Lord. His name means my God is he, or he is my God. We're even told the name of his father, which is interesting. We don't, we don't know the name of Job's father. He's never introduced to us, but we do know this man's father's name. And his father's name is Barakel, which means God has, has blessed. Uh, we know uh, something about where he is, is from. He is a Buzzite, that is, from the land of Buzz. Uh, Buzz was uh, a name of one of Abraham's sons, actually, uh, and Buzz's brother was Uz. And uh, you might remember that uh, Job is from the land of Uz, and uh, Elihu is from the land of Buzz, you see. But, so there's some kind of connection there. He's a Buzzite. So certainly it seems we're meant to expect that Elihu, whose name means, uh, he is my God, we're meant to expect uh, that Elihu has God's concern uh, in mind as he comes to Job. He's got an impressive genealogy. He's going to give four speeches. He's going to speak uh, more speeches than any of the other friends. His words are never responded to, and the Lord doesn't mention him at the end of the book. Uh, so it's hard in some ways to know what to think of his counsel. But we know this, first of all, it's a rough start. He speaks in, in anger. 
And this should at least put us on our guard. You know, Ephesians 4 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's easy for us to sin when we burn with anger, even if we believe we are burning with anger in a righteous cause, because we're sinners. And so we need to be aware. Later on, when he does speak in chapter 37, he'll speak of the fact that he, he, he knows that God is beyond us. And so uh, he, he knows that, that he's not speaking out of some kind of, uh, he's, he's not without sin. Uh, but he does believe, as we will find out, unlike the three friends, that suffering actually does serve the purpose of God in a believer's life. He does believe, as we'll find out, that suffering teaches us, and he certainly will paint a glorious picture of God's majesty, Elihu will. And so overall, it's best to see him as, a, as an advance on the three friends. He still, he, uh, Elihu doesn't know all things. He doesn't know what's happened in Job chapter 1 and 2. He doesn't know, uh, you know what inter- interacted there between the Satan and, and the Lord. But he does seem to be a, a little in advance of his friends. Um, and in one way, he is a preparer of the way and the word of the Lord. Just like uh, in one sense... Elijah, or a John the Baptist. Because after Elihu speaks, the next voice will be the voice of God. And so, rough start. But is he a better counselor? Should we look at Elihu as a better counselor? Is this a better way? Well, there are indications in this chapter that it is so. And that what we are going to hear from Elihu is going to bring into Job's life, who who is, again, the sufferer, here is, a, here is a better counselor. Here is someone who's going to come and speak a word into his life to prepare him to hear the Lord himself. Because we have to remember, of course, that while Job is about a, a book about suffering and how to endure uh, suffering, it's also very much a, a book about how believers are meant to come alongside those who are suffering to counsel them and to point them to the truth. And a life hasn't built that, and so far didn't do that. They made Job's suffering, we know, worse. So how can you counsel someone who's suffering in a way that is better to prepare them for the Lord? Well, this is how. Here's some things we learn in this chapter. First of all, uh, first of all, it would seem that Elihu is a patient uh, listener. Uh, you remember James's word that we are to be slow to uh, anger and slow to speak and quick to listen. He doesn't get all those right as far as anger goes, uh, but he is at least slow to speak. Verse 11 says this, Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings uh, while you searched out uh, what to say. Uh, I gave you, verse 12, my attention. Behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his his word. So here we're, here we're told that uh, Elihu uh, has been there, it seems, somehow the whole time. That Elihu has been uh, overhearing these conversations between Job and, as they're called here, the three men rather than the three friends. And, uh, and, we, and we ask ourselves, well, wait a minute, where was Elihu this whole time? He seems to have heard all but he is not mentioned uh, along the way. If his three friends 
Job's three friends were silent, we remember, right, for the, for the first seven days as they sat uh, with Job. Elihu has been silent for longer. He's heard all these speeches of the friends, and he's heard Job's response, but he hasn't yet said a word. Uh, I don't know about you, but perhaps you, like me, have a hard time sitting through one conversation without speaking, right? <laughs> and we're itching to speak. Well, apparently, uh, Elihu, is a, he's a patient listener. He's heard all these things that have been said. Uh, we also find out that Elihu has deferred uh, to age and experience. So here's someone suffering. Uh, Elihu is there. He's heard it all. He's a patient listener. And he's also deferred to age and experience. Notice what he says in verse 6. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am, among, I am young in years. You are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. The word opinion there, don't let that fool you. The word opinion there is the word knowledge. It's not what we think of when we think of an opinion. Uh, to declare my knowledge to you, I said, now uh, this is what Elihu said to himself, let days speak. That is, let those who have lived longer than I have speak. And many years teach wisdom. Now here what Elihu is saying is that, of course, in the culture of the day, it was assumed that gray hairs meant wisdom. The idea is that the longer you live, the more you've experienced, the thought is, the more you will have learned, right? The longer you've lived, the more you've experienced. And in this context, of course, in a Christian context, the more that you have walked with the Lord, the more you have learned of His ways and the more you understand His ways. This was expressed, in fact, uh, by one of the friends, Eliphaz, back in chapter uh, 15, verse 7, where in confronting Job, he had said, are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know, said Eliphaz to Job, that we do not know? What do you understand that's not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. And so that's what Eliphaz assumes, that there is wisdom and good counsel with the aged. Job assumed this too back in chapter 12, verse 12, where he said, wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. And in the Bible, of course, this too is, is often the case, but not always, not always. So for instance, Solomon uh, in, uh, in Ecclesiastes uh, 4, 13 says this, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. <laughs> so yes, experience and age and walking with the Lord should give us wisdom, should make us good counselors, but the Bible says not always. Sometimes you might have gray hair and you won't listen to anybody. You won't take a word of advice or, or counsel from anybody, no matter how good it is, uh, how wise it is, or where it comes from. And then, of course, we remember Jesus who, when he was speaking to Nicodemus, remember when he was speaking to Nicodemus? Uh, and Nicodemus can't understand what Jesus is saying when he says, you know, no one's going to see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. 
And uh, Nicodemus says, I don't understand what this is about. And Jesus says, wait a minute, you a teacher in Israel? And do you not know these things? Right? You, you've been around, you even are in a position of teaching, and you don't know these things? So, it's, so yes, it's a, it's, it, it, it should be true, but it's not always true. And likewise, Elihu does not find that wisdom has been displayed in this case by Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. Verse 9, it's not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Verse 12, I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job. Verse 15, speaking of the friends, they are dismayed, they answer no more, they have not a word to say. Shall I wait because they don't speak? Because they stand there and answer no more? So even though this is true, so, so not always will the aged, those who've experienced more, be wiser. But Elihu, uh, Elihu begins there. The starting point is youth should defer to those who have lived more, observed more, experienced more, learned more, walked with the Lord a greater distance. So that means that if that's you, and you are gray-haired, and you have walked with the Lord a long time, wisdom and counsel uh, should be with you as you have walked with the Lord. But likewise, the wisdom of the youth is not to be despised. You remember Paul said to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but show them, set them an example in purity and in faith, you see. So it's not so much the age, but that yes, as you walk with the Lord more, there should be greater wisdom and counsel. But that has not been found by Elihu in the case of Job writes Derek Thomas, many critics are not kind to Elihu. They see him as an egocentric, brash young man, full of himself and with nothing of any relevance to say. True, he's young, confident, inexperienced, talkative, and obviously angry, but none of these precludes him from making a contribution. Elihu is bold enough to challenge the received wisdom of the day, and perhaps it takes someone, says Thomas, of his temperament to do that. After all, the received wisdom of the day would have Elihu say, nothing at all. You just be quiet. Well, he's a patient listener. He defers to age and experience. And he also confesses that uh, true wisdom comes from God. Listen to what he says in verse 7. I said, first of all, let days speak. Many years teach wisdom. You speak. But he says, it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It's not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion or my, my knowledge. Verse 18, for I'm full of words. The spirit within me uh, constrains me. But it's this language specifically that Elihu uses of the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. Now, clearly, Elihu is not saying that simply anyone who, because you know in the, in the Scripture, the spirit or breath can refer simply to that breath of life that God breathes into man so that we become a living being. But surely, Elihu is not simply saying that anybody who has, who has breath or who has life uh, in their creation somehow has wisdom. He's not saying that, but he's saying that something, uh, that, that the Lord himself, the Almighty, is the one who brings understanding 
to man. His breath, His speaking brings understanding. True wisdom, uh, Elihu says, doesn't really lodge with the aged, but true wisdom uh, actually comes uh, from the Almighty. It is the Almighty who gives us understanding, whether it's suffering or, 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 or blessing or whatever it is. It comes from Him. I think about that, that, those verses in, the, in Timothy uh, where the Apostle Paul writes that all, you know, here he's talking about the breath of the Almighty gives understanding. And Paul says, all Scripture, all Scripture is God breathed and is useful teaching and correction and rebuke. So what, what Elihu is simply saying is there, there's, a, there's a better way here. And the wisdom we need in this situation comes from the Almighty. He will help us to understand. Isn't that great? That's so important. This is the better way. Now, this is not what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar were thinking about. Remember, they were, they were offended at Job. They said, Job, you need to listen to us. You need to listen to what we tell you. you. We are your elders. Just do what we say and understand things the way we do. But Elihu says, no, uh, it's the breath of the Almighty that makes us understand. It's His speech, His voice, His, His word. This is the better way to know that understanding comes from the Lord. This is so important. You know, whether the issue is identity, you know, who am I? Whether the issue is purpose, why did God make me like this? Whether the issue is dignity, how can I be of any value? Whether the issue is accountability, who must I answer to? Whether the question is destiny, where am I going? Whether the question is suffering, where do I turn? Whether the question is hope, uh, what keeps me going? Whether the question is help, where can I find answers? Elihu is saying the, the breath of the Almighty makes him understand. True wisdom comes from God. It's not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. The breath of the Almighty helps us to understand. This is important. This reminds us, of course, of, uh, uh, of James in the book of James and what uh, we've already learned uh, from him. Do you remember how he uh, begins his book uh, in James 1.5? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James 3.15, speaking about, uh, speaking about earthly wisdom, the wisdom that comes down, uh, or heavenly wisdom, the is- wisdom that comes down from above uh, is, uh, is full of good things. It's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial, uh, and it's sincere wisdom from, from God. Uh, David Paulison, I think, uh, perhaps is a, a, a person you've heard of. He worked uh, with the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation and in Philadelphia. has written lots of good books on, uh, on, uh, on the Christian life and Christian nurture and Christian uh, uh, counseling. And uh, he describes how, how the problem we have today is that, um, you know, for modern man, we have kind of idolized the self. And so rather than thinking that, you know, the breath of the Almighty is what brings understanding, we think that that uh, we need to look within. And this is what he said. Uh, Robert Coles describes the, he describes it as a psychological ethos or a way of thinking. This is, he says, a dominant theme, it's an, if not an obsession in our national life. It means a concentration 
persistent, if not feverish, uh, concentration upon one's thoughts, feelings, wishes, and worries, bordering on, if not embracing, solipsism, which means the self as the only or main form of reality. That's what we're about. The therapeutic has infiltrated Christianity. That is, thinking that somehow the answers to all of life's problems, including suffering, are somehow wrapped up with ourself rather than the breath of the Almighty. He goes on. The therapeutic has infiltrated Christianity. When James Hunter evaluated trends in evangelical publishing in 1980, even before the massive recovery movement later in the decade, he concluded, this is what he concluded, that evangelical faith was being, uh, was being deluged by a psychotherapeutic, narcissistic, and hedonistic preoccupation with the sensitivities and needs of modern man, and that it had lost touch with the traditional Protestant form of self-examination that was concerned with the rule of sin in the life and the process of mortification and sanctification. It's not surprising to hear people, he writes, talking in the church foyer about her dysfunctional family upbringing, his self-esteem, and my needs not being met. They read their lives in terms of the therapeutic rather than through God's gaze on the same phenomena. Os Guinness called the modern psychology's carriers of idolatry and heresy. The therapeutic is a substitute theology designed to replace faith in God. Psychology supplies us, he writes, Paulison does, with alternative priests. And so this is what we're, this is what we're facing. Here comes Elihu, and he says, uh, I've waited patiently, I've deferred to age, but listen, wisdom, true understanding, has to come from God. And in our modern culture, we say no. Um, uh, truth comes from the self within, our own thinking. And no, no, says Elihu. The answer here for this, this suffering servant of God uh, must come from God himself. The last thing we see here, why we should look to Elihu as a better way, a better counselor, is that clearly at the end of this passage, uh, his focus is on the glory of God. His focus is on the goal of glorifying God. Notice what he says, verse 19. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Now, no one would charge Elihu here with a, a lack of conviction or passion, right? He says he's got this suffering Job. He's heard three friends speak. Uh, they've kind of been full of themselves. He said, no, we need the wisdom from God. And, and then he says, I am, not, I am not here to flatter anybody. Uh, if, if I would, um, if I would, my maker would, would, would sweep me away. This is not what I, what I need to be about, but I, I must speak into this situation. He is convicted. He is certainly passionate. I think of the Apostle Paul who said, uh, the love of Christ uh, compels me. And so there is uh, there is something within Elihu. Uh, he says, I have to speak. I can't be silent. Even as the Apostle Paul, with the love of Christ within him, had to speak. But here's the thing. Elihu is not concerned, he says, as he counsels his friend. 
He's not concerned about uh, pleasing men, but about pleasing God. Verse 21, I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. In other words, Elihu's saying, listen, I've got something to say. I've been listening this whole time, and uh, I, must, I must speak. And, and when I speak, I'm not concerned about, about flattering anybody when I speak. I need to speak the truth. The only person that I'm concerned about is my maker, and so I'm not, I'm not here to flatter anybody, uh, but I need to speak, says Elihu, the truth. Now, friends, there's great help here from Elihu. He points us to a more fruitful path. I think of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 when he's talking about the, uh, the gospel and how he brought the gospel and how you and I are to think about our own ministry and our own calling of uh, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul has these wonderful words in 1, Timothy, or 1 Thessalonians 2.3 where he says this, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, this is what he says, so we speak the gospel not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as Elihu says, not here to flatter anybody, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, says Paul. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. When he spoke, Elihu speaks, his goal is this, to please God. It's so important. If you would be a helper of a sufferer, you need to have one goal on your mind, to speak the truth for the glory of God And that when you speak, your goal is always, first of all, to please God. Whatever you have to say to a fellow Christian, whatever they're going through, whatever they're they're suffering, but to speak the truth. As someone has said, you can flatter someone all the way to hell. Only the truth will save them. And only the truth, friends, right, will truly help them. And so Elihu comes and says, I'm not here to flatter anybody, uh, but I'm concerned about the glory of God. And friends, if we could walk in this better way, that our highest goal, what drives us passionately, is clearly Elihu is filled with passion, that what would drive us would be the honor and the praise and the glory of God, not the honor and praise and the glory of men. Does that remind you of anybody? Someone who um, would speak the truth regardless of what men thought, but with just the one concern of what God thought. Oh, I can think of a few, like the Apostle Paul and like the Lord Jesus. Jesus who said, my food, you know, what I nourish myself on is to do the will of him who sent me, you see. And that was the, not, and unlike, right, the Pharisees who said, uh, you know, there's so many times in the Gospels where the Bible will say they did something uh, because there were people watching, or the Pharisees didn't do something 
Because the people were watching. So many times as you read through the Gospels. Never for Paul and never for the Lord Jesus Christ, whose one goal on his mind was the glory of God. And when the glory of God is your goal, you are able to counsel others. This is a better way. It's off to a rough start, you know, angry. We need to, need to be careful. But he's a patient listener. He defers to age and experience. But he knows that understanding here has to come from God. And his only concern is not to flatter men, uh, but to seek the glory of God and to speak the truth. So what is the truth? What is Elihu so passionate about? What flavor is that wine that's bubbling up within him that's going to spill out all over Job? Well, we'll have to wait (laughs) for next time to find out. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, we can be introduced to this counselor. Lord, we know something's coming, uh, something different. Lord, we thank you that this seems to be a better way that, that Elihu is sent to prepare the way for the Lord, who will speak and speak loudly and clearly at the end of this book. But already we can see, Lord, that there is a concern here for truth. There is a concern for for your glory. And there is a concern to speak that truth, no matter what might come, into the life of Job the sufferer. And so, Lord, we pray that, that even as we identify with Job in our own suffering, Lord, that though we, we may not suffer because we have sinned, oh Lord, far too often we know that we sin when we're suffering. Lord, that even as we uh, learn of how this truth applies to Job and to us, Lord, we would also see that you've called us uh, to be an Elihu to one another. Oh Lord, that in your church, uh, we would speak truth to one another, that we would be passionate and convicted that only wisdom comes from, from you understanding, Lord, and that gives us the ability to speak that truth into the lives of those we love, the lives of those we care about, that they might hear indeed the truth of God to find help, to find hope in you. Help us, Lord, then uh, to walk in this better way as we minister even to one another here in this place. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.